We've seen now that Jacob and his family, 70 souls in all, have arrived now down in the land of Egypt, and Joseph, as a move of strategy, he brought them into the land of Goshen, which actually was the richest land in that day. But they are right now in the midst of a famine, and any land is not very valuable to the owner at this particular time. Now, we are going to find this is the best chapter of Jacob so far. Jacob just doesn't appear in a good light when you first meet him in Scripture. In fact, all the way through, until you get to the time he makes his trip to Egypt and you begin to see he's become a man of faith. And I believe this chapter, more than any other, reveals that. Now, the famine has become more intense and worse. Of course, it's drawing to an end, but the people in the world were involved in this, and not just the land of Canaan, not just Egypt. They're the only two mentioned here, and the reason is obvious, because they are the only two sections, geographical sections, that concern our story at all. Now, we want to begin reading here at chapter 47, verse 1. And we find now that Joseph is going to present his father and the family to Pharaoh in Egypt. Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan, And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. You see, before he asked for a place for his father and his brethren, why he put them in the land of Goshen. And you can see the strategy in that for the very fact that if they are there, why he'd be more apt to give them that land in view of the fact they had already moved in and unpacked their goods. The idea would be, well, just go ahead and stay where you are. And that would be the attitude. Now, will you notice verse 2, "...and he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What's your occupation? They said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers." We saw last time shepherds and cattlemen didn't get along in those days, and the Egyptians, they just didn't care for shepherds. In other words, they didn't care for taking care of sheep. That wasn't their, what is the slang expression today? It's That wasn't their bag, taking care of sheep. The little poem about what was it and who was it that had three bags full, one for my master and one for the dame and one for the little boy lives in the lane. Well, the Egyptians, that wasn't their bag at all, let alone three bagfuls, and they didn't care for that. So that opened up an occupation for the children of Israel to do something that they could do and that the Egyptians didn't want to do. So Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What's your occupation? They said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come, For thy servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, 
Thy father and thy brethren have come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen let them dwell. And if thou knowest any man of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. In other words, here is an occupation that apparently in Egypt was not popular, being shepherds. And also, it would seem here that Pharaoh needed someone to take care of his cattle. Now, the famine was worldwide, and the seriousness of it is revealed because it's now affecting the land of Egypt. You see, the land of Egypt depended upon the flooding each year from the Nile. Well, there's no flooding from the Nile. And as a result, why, even Egypt was suffering. But Joseph had already gathered up the grain. Now, we find that Joseph presents his own father. And I want you to notice this. Jacob now stands in the best light that we've seen him in in the entire course of our study here of him. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Notice that. Jacob now is in the place of blessing Pharaoh. He's beginning to live up to his name. You see, he's a witness for God. And the less is always blessed of the greater. And he blesses him in the place, you see, as a witness for God. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old art thou? Now, here is the very place that if Jacob was asserting that old nature that he had at the beginning, here would be the place to say, well, I tell you, I'm 130 years old, and I want to tell you, Pharaoh, I have really seen things. I'd like to tell you about the time I put one over on my brother Esau. I'd like to tell you about how I did this and how I accumulated a great deal in the land of Haran and how I finally made a deal with my father-in-law. and Then how I met Esau. Oh, he could just go on and on and on. And he could brag about his family. I got 12 sons. But listen to him now. He's a different man. Listen to Jacob, friends. And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty years. Now, that's how old he was when he came down to the land of Egypt, friends. He was 130 years old. We'll find when he died, he's 147. He spent 17 years down at the land of Egypt. And seeing Joseph and coming down to Egypt at this time, this man who was right on the verge of death, I think he had one foot in the grave, the other foot in a banana peeling when he came down there. He was about ready to die. But now he lives 17 more years, having found out Joseph is alive. Now listen to him. Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and I have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Here was an opportunity for the old man to boast. My, he could really tell a few tall tales at this point. And if he'd been the same man that ran away from his home up yonder in the land of Canaan, he probably would have. But now all he can say is, 
I'm 130 years old, and my life is not anything to brag about. Few and evil have been the days of my life. And now another thing. I put one over on my father. Is that what he says? No. He says, I have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. I don't measure up to my fathers. Does this sound like the same old Jacob that we knew at the beginning? No. It's a different man now. He's changed. He's giving God the glory for his life, and he's making no appeal that he has accomplished a great deal. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And I think, frankly, that he's arrived here. Here's an opportunity for him to boast, and he certainly doesn't take advantage of it. And somebody else might have said, well, now I want to impress Pharaoh, who I am. Pharaoh's a great ruler, but I want him to know I was a pretty big man up yonder in the land of Canaan. But not Jacob. He says, my days have been evil. I've been a sinner. <laughs> Nothing to brag about, save by the grace of God. I get a little weary about all oh, today. You hear so much boasting on the part of many Christians, even in our fundamental circles, how we attempt to applaud certain men for what they've done. We talk about how great they are. Well, if we all told the truth, what we'd say is we're just a bunch of sinners, and we haven't anything to brag about except we have a wonderful Savior who's been gracious and patient with us down through the years. And friends, that's all we have to boast of. That's all that any of us here today have to boast of, to have a Savior slain for us. And we can't say we're superior to our fathers. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, he's a seminary professor, he was telling me, because I think every boy, and I guess girl, goes through this period of life in your teens, you're sort of ashamed of your parents. They're just not hip, you know. They're not up to it. And so this fellow was telling me, he says, you know, when I went away to college, why? He said, i be honest with you. I was just ashamed of my dad. And his dad was a preacher, by the way. And he was coming to the college to speak. And he said, I pretended I was sick. Couldn't even go time he spoke in the school because he said, I just didn't want to be known as his son. And I was ashamed of it. Then he said, you know, I spent four years in college and then went into the business world for a couple of years. And he said, I want to tell you, I had a rough time. And during that time, he said, I changed my thinking about my dad. He said, I had thought for a while, the old man, he's just not capable of making a living for us. And he seemed to do pretty well. Certainly, he was an outstanding Bible teacher, but I thought he was pretty stupid. But he said, you know, after I'd been out in the business world and faced up to a few things, he said, I came home. And he said, my, how my dad had improved. No one had ever learned as much as he'd learned in those brief years I was away from home. He certainly had grown. And he said, frankly... I had come to the conclusion that he's a lot smarter man than I thought he was. Well, that's the thing many of us would say, but not Jacob. Jacob takes this humble place, and he's a different man. He's a changed man. 
Now let me read beginning at verse 11 of chapter 47 of Genesis. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And that's the land of Goshen. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren, all his father's household, with bread according to their families. There was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. Now, the reason these two lands are mentioned, they are the geographical locations that are involved in our story. But both places now are suffering. And had Jacob remained with his family in Canaan, he would have perished. But now in the land of Egypt, grain has been stored, but they're not producing it anymore. Evidently, the famine had spread all over Africa because the Nile River, the Blue Nile, was not feeding water in for the overflow of the River Nile in Egypt. Verse 14, And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, for the corn which they bought, and Joseph brought the money unto Pharaoh's house. Now, this is something Joseph has been criticized for, that he took advantage of the people's poverty and he bought up the land. In other words, he closed in on the mortgage and brought the land. Well, I think that's an unfair criticism of him. To begin with, he's the agent of Pharaoh. He did none of this for himself. It didn't help him a bit. He's making no effort to enrich himself. And he was not crooked in any sense of the word. He did not gain personally because of the famine. And I think the illustration would be that you will recall when it was discovered that the atom bomb is to be made from uranium. Uranium all of a sudden becomes one of the elements, one of the metals that's intensely valuable. And some men found that they had uranium in their property, especially over here in Arizona. Well, they were paid a handsome sum for it. Well, were they taking advantage of their government? I don't think so. The law of supply and demand took care of the price and the scarcity of the article and the demand for it. And the same thing, I think, was true here in the land of Egypt. He bought the land. I'm sure that he got it at a good price. He bought it for Pharaoh, but it's the question of law of supply and demand, and he's actually enabling the people to live by furnishing them food. I think that Joseph stayed within the confines of the law of supply and demand. Now, will you notice verse 15, when money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread. For why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. And Joseph said, Give your cattle, and I'll give you for your cattle if money fail. And they brought their cattle. And then the cattle failed. That is, they got rid of them in the sense they sold all they had. They came the second year and said unto him, We'll not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. And the herds of cattle are gone and they want to put themselves in slavery. He takes the land for Pharaoh. And Joseph, verse 20, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them, so the land became Pharaoh's. 
evidently the famine really was a very terrible thing. It had spread over the land. Now, verse 21, "...and as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end of them." A great migration into the urban areas, you see. Why? Well, they'd be near the center of supply. That is where the grain was stored. And you remember that Joseph picked these centers throughout Egypt at the very beginning, and the grain was stored there. He brings the people where they'll be close to the supply because it has become very serious. We are told, verse 22, "...only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh, and did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them, wherefore they sold not their land." Then Joseph said unto the people, "...behold, I have bought you this day and your land for Pharaoh." Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. It shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own, for seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your households, and for food for your little ones. Now the famine is over. That is, Joseph knows it will be over in the next year. So he tells the people to sow their grain. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in thy sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Verse 26, Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. Verse 27, And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the whole age of Jacob was a hundred forty and seven years. See, he was in Egypt now, we're told definitely, seventeen years. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph, and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight... Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt, but I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, Swear unto me, and he swear unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Now, Jacob knew at this time and I think there are several factors that entered into him asking that he be buried back in the land. First of all, as he looks around him and sees what's happening, he becomes alarmed that he will die in the land of Egypt. I think that's clear to him now. And the success of Joseph in acquiring all the land for Pharaoh, it makes him believe that his family might become comfortable in Egypt and they'll never want to return to Canaan. And that could happen. It did happen, of course. And in the second place, his own age made him know that he'd die shortly. This is a, an evidence, I think, of the faith on the part of Jacob in the covenant God had made with his fathers. And I'd have you note this in closing, because this will come up several times now as we go through the Bible. The hope of the Old Testament is an earthly hope. Abraham believed he'd be raised from the dead in that land. He wanted to be buried in that land. That was true of Isaac. And now Jacob has the same faith. You see, the hope of the Old Testament is not 
to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and enter the city of the new Jerusalem, which is the eternal and permanent abode of the church. That's not the hope of the Old Testament. This earth is to be heaven. I tell you, when the kingdom is set up on this earth, why, that will be the great hope, and these people will be raised for that kingdom. The first part of it is a thousand years of testing. But after that, it's the eternal kingdom, and it continues on. Now, this man, he says, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. If he had no faith or hope, what difference would it make where you're buried? And for the believer today, what difference does it make where you're buried? At the time of the rapture, wherever you are, why, you'll be raised, your body will, and you'll be joined to your spirit, if that is, if you've died, and the living are to be changed and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, it wouldn't make any difference whether you're in Egypt or Canaan or Los Angeles or wherever you live today, in Timbuktu, for that matter. Why, the living in Christ and the dead in Christ in all of these places will be caught up. So it wouldn't make any difference. We don't go to a launching pad down in Florida and get on that launching pad and take off from there. Our hope is a heavenly hope. This is an earthly hope. And the fact that Jacob wants to be buried back in that land is an evidence of his faith in the resurrection and to be raised from the dead in that land. I say to you that this man's growing. Now, as we get into this chapter here, we find that we have Jacob's last sickness, and he blesses the two sons of Joseph. And by faith, we're told Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worship, leaning upon the top of his staff. That's Hebrews 11:21. Now, I think you can discover here another evidence of the spiritual side of Jacob, and that he's growing. He's come a long way since his early days. If I may adopt a very slang and ugly expression that's in some of our commercials, let me say this of Jacob. You've come a long ways, baby. And I don't mean that he's come to the place where he can smoke cigarettes and get lung cancer. But I think that he's come spiritually a long, long ways. Now, I think that all of you that are studying with us, reading through the Bible with us, will concur in this observation. But the growth has been slow, very slow. And it wasn't a sensational experience. A great many people look for that. I talked to a very beautiful young couple. They were a fine-looking young couple in Memphis, Tennessee, several years ago after service. They had come forward. And I asked them what they came forward for. They said they wanted all that God had for them. And I found out they came forward every Sunday. I asked them, what are you really looking for? Well, they thought they would have some sensational, momentary experience that had just, all of a sudden, they had become fully grown. We're told to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've had to wait now till he's become an old man to see the fruit. But thank God for the possibility of growth in our lives and the patience of God which permits it. Now, if God moved in like some of us would, and I know that my impatience would cause me to move in 
and do something about it. But God very patiently dealt with this man, and he very patiently will deal with you and me. Now let's look at this incident in this man's life. Old Jacob is going to bless the sons of Joseph. I'm reading now verse 1, Genesis 48. And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and bless me. Now, can you imagine the thrill of this old man who now has this boy and his two sons before him? And he never dreamed he'd ever see him again. He thought he was dead. What a thrill it must have been to him. And this was his favorite son. Now he finds him elevated to this high position down in the land of Egypt. And what a thrill it must have been to old Jacob to have this boy of his. He's on his deathbed. Now, he's been down there 17 years. And here comes this man with his two sons, that is Joseph. And old Jacob, he gets up and sits on the edge of his bed, and he is an old man, and he's dying. But notice where he goes to in his thinking. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. I tell you, friends, that he's come a long ways. You see here the faith of Jacob. He's now trusting God. He's not bragging about Jacob. Jacob was clever as a young man. He could get what he wanted, so he thought and would use any kind of a method, too. But now he looks back over his life, and he goes back to where God appeared to him. That's the beginning of it all. God appeared to him there in Bethel when he went out of the land, and then when he came back to the land. He says, God appeared to me there, and God bless me. Here's the faith of Jacob. Now listen to verse 4. And he said unto me, Behold, I'll make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, and I'll make of thee a multitude of people, and I will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. Now, keep those two things in mind. They run through the entire Old Testament and into the New Testament, friends. God promised this line, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and He said to them that through you two things will be accomplished. Well, actually three things. But the important thing right here for Jacob was, I'm going to make you fruitful. I'll make a nation to come from you. And the second thing, I give you this land. Those are two things that you can nail down. They're very important as far as the Bible is concerned. Now, the third thing is important for you and me. I'll make you a blessing to all nations, to all people. And the reason that right now you and I are sitting down with our Bible and considering the Word of God is because God's made good His promise that He made way back yonder. 
And God, by the way, has made two-thirds of that promise good. One-third he hadn't, really. They don't have that land today. Oh, they've got a little border there, but I tell you, it's a bone of contention. But when they get it from the hand of God, they'll live there in peace. Every man under his vine and fig tree, they'll own their property then, pay no taxes. Believe me, friends, if that took place, it'd be the millennium, wouldn't it? Well, that's what it'll be when they get it. Now, may I read on here at verse 5. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee in Egypt, they're mine. Well, they are as his grandsons. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Now, what is going to take place is that the two sons of Joseph become each one a tribe. Now, I know immediately someone is going to say, well, there were 13 tribes of the nation Israel. No, my friend, there were not 13 tribes, only 12. Well, you're going to count it up on your fingers and say, well, I count 12 sons, and then if the two sons of Joseph are made a tribe, each one of them, and they were, that was the tribe of Ephraim, tribe of Manasseh. There was no tribe of Joseph, but one tribe becomes two tribes. Now, that makes 13 in any man's mathematics. But friends, it's not 13 tribes, because the tribe of Levi that became the high priestly tribe, they were not counted. They were not given any land. They were not given a territory. They were scattered as priests throughout the tribes and were not counted as a tribe. So that actually there are 12 tribes. Now, you may say, well, that seems to me to be a rather devious way. Well, I didn't do it. The Word of God does it that way, and that's the way God wanted it, and that's the way God made it. Now, will you notice verse 5, "...and now my two sons Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt." And they're pretty good-sized boys. They have to be 17 years old. And thy issue, which thou begettest after them, shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren and their inheritance. Now, old Jacob picks these two boys out, each one to become a tribe. Now, notice where his mind goes again. Verse 7, And as for me, when I came from Paden, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan, in the way when yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrath. And I buried her there in the way of Ephrath. The same is Bethlehem. Now, you may today at Christmas time sing, O little town of Bethlehem, and you think of the birth of Jesus. You know what old Jacob would think of if he heard you singing, O little town of Bethlehem at Christmas time? He'd think of the death of Rachel, not the birth of anyone except Benjamin. But he would think primarily of the death of his beloved and beautiful Rachel. And right here on his deathbed, he goes right back there where he buried her. That was his heartbreak, as you know. He said, I buried her there, and it's Bethlehem. And verse 8 now, And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Whose are these? Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, They are my sons, whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I'll bless them. Have you noticed both Isaac and Jacob, when they got old, 
They have difficulty seeing. There's an eye trouble that's been in that land for years, and it does affect the old. A brightness of the sun, I guess, had a great deal to do with it, but it's still true, I think, even over there today. I noticed that a great many in the Arab countries, I should say, that there were a great many old people that seemed to have difficulty getting around. They weren't entirely blind, but they certainly couldn't see very well. You'd see them being led by someone, or they'd be sort of feeling their way along. I suppose it's been characteristic in that land. We notice it here. He didn't recognize the two boys at all. Verse 10, now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And the fellows are a little embarrassed by their grandfather showing such affection for them. And I read, and Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. You see, they tried to get away from him. <laughs> when he lavished his affection upon these boys, and he reaches out for them and finally finds them. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. Now he's doing that, that they might be blessed, and the right hand would be the one that would have priority. And I read verse 14 now, "...and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly." For Manasseh was his firstborn. Now, Ephraim, you remember, becomes the leader above Manasseh. Joshua came out of the tribe of Ephraim, by the way, and you will find that out of that tribe there were many great men. We'll have occasion to call attention to that. It became the tribe with priority, no question about it. Now, what happened was when these two boys were moved up to old Jacob, although he couldn't see too well, he could see what his son Joseph was doing. He was pushing the older one where he could put his right hand on him and the next one where he'd put his left hand on him. And what did old Jacob do here? Well, he just switched hands. He just crossed his hands, and that meant the right hand went on the younger. Now, why do you suppose he did that? Well, I have several suggestions to make to you of why he would do that sort of thing. Well, I think the reason is he was the younger, was he not? And the blessing was his. And so he passes the blessing on to the younger here. You find this running all the way through in the choice, for instance, of a king for Israel. God never did choose old Saul. That was the people's choice. They voted for him. And people get what they vote for, of course, and they got Saul. But God's choice was David. And David was not the oldest son of Jesse at all. He was the youngest one. Now, why does God do that? God is illustrating for you and me a great spiritual truth. God does not accept primogeniture, that is, natural birth. Never will he accept it. There must be the new birth. Therefore, God does not pay attention 
to what we had paid attention to. We'd say, well, he's the oldest boy. He has the responsibility. We can depend on the oldest boy. Well, the oldest boy is not the one God always chooses. That is, he doesn't choose the natural man. And he chooses no man because of his natural ability. Oh, that's a truth that we need to learn today. We feel like, now don't misunderstand, God can use talent, but you better be dead sure it's dedicated to him. Because if it took talent to bring revival, we'd have had revival in Southern California years ago. We have got Christian talent that's running out our ears out here, but we don't have revival. And you know why? It's not dedicated to him. I tell you, my friend, it has to be yielded to him to be used of him. Now, we find that Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, Manasseh in his left, pushes them up there, and Jacob just crosses. Now, notice, Israel stretched out his right hand, laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, "'God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day. Now listen to him. He reaches spiritual heights here, friends, and he never goes any higher than this. Verse 16, The angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. When you look back upon your life today, do you have a great deal to boast of? Oh, today, there's so much of this reviewing of the lives of Christians and giving them a lot of credit. Poor old Jacob, he's come a long ways, friends. He says, the angel which redeemed me from evil, bless the lads. Old Jacob had nothing to boast of, except he had a wonderful Redeemer. And let my name be named on them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And that certainly took place. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. Listen to this. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. He also shall become a people." And he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. That's important to see. And Joseph better accept it because he's not the oldest. He happens to be one of the youngest sons, and the blessing is given to him. Now notice verse 20, "...he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. Notice the faith of the man, friends. This man has a wonderful faith in God. Now he says, Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. That is, that the inheritance 
he would take the place of the oldest. 